All right, let's uh, open our Bibles to Judges chapter 20. We're in the no man's land of Judges right now. Judges 19, 20, and 21. Lots of weird stuff going on, but we uh, trust the Lord to bring application. We're going to look at all of chapter 20, all 48 verses, so we're going to have to move a little bit rapidly. The topic, when the Israelites unite to discipline the wicked men of Gibeah, the tribe of Benjamin breaks ranks and defends them, precipitating a bloody civil war. The title of our message, The Curious Case of Benjamin Betrayal. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning, we need... uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit to take us through this text. It's a difficult text in many ways, Lord, in terms of our trying to relate to it without uh, saying too little or too much, but we trust that you are here to minister to our hearts. Uh, You've brought us here to this place, Lord, to have a meeting with us, and so meet with us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If your life were a movie, which one would it be? I took one of those quizzes that randomly populate your page on Facebook. After answering 29 penetrating personality questions, I found out that if my life were a movie, it would be Bridget Jones's diary. You can't argue with social science. I don't know what that means, and I don't think I want to. Now, let's ask the question differently. If your life were one of the original Star Wars trilogy, which one would it be? I'd like my life to always be the third movie, maybe the first, never the second. With a title like The Empire Strikes Back, we should have been ready for Darth Vader to triumph and for the evil empire to rally. The rebel base was destroyed. Han Solo was captured, then frozen in a block of carbonite. Luke's hand was severed from his arm. And worst of all, Luke discovered that Darth Vader was his father. I figured, spoiler alerts are way... If you haven't seen that movie, then you're dead. Christians are engaged in battle with an evil empire. We're told that our spiritual warfare is against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Those are names describing a hierarchy of evil beings bent on harming us. Their leader, Satan, is called the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Jesus defeated Satan and his malevolent forces on the cross. We're told that he triumphed over them. But our Lord has not yet returned to claim his victory. And in the meantime, life on earth could be described as the evil empire striking back. You and I are soldiers in this supernatural fight. If I'm being honest, I must admit that I sometimes am defeated. Since I belong to Jesus, I can't lose the war, but I can and do lose battles along the way. In chapter 20 of Judges, the Israelites join together to execute justice upon the perverted men in the city of Gibeah. Their cause is righteous, and they seek the Lord. Nevertheless, they are twice defeated in battles before they break through to victory the third time. I think those of us who suffer defeats will be able to see ourselves in them. And more than see ourselves, we'll be encouraged to fight on. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, report for battle with every expectation of victory. Number two, return to battle after every experience of defeat. Let's talk about reporting for battle verses 1 through 11. I can think of several movies in which the heroes think they are hired as actors to play their famous parts, but in fact end up engaged with genuine enemies. In one, the former cast of a cult television space adventure series, Galaxy Quest, spend most of their days attending fan conventions. 
During one, the captain is approached by a group calling themselves the Thermians who request his assistance. He agrees, thinking it's going to be a fan event. He doesn't realize that he is transported to a real spaceship, which he believes is a set, nor that the Thermians are really aliens. Hoping to get it over with quickly, he provokes Saurus, an evil alien general and enemy of the Thermians, before asking to be returned home, unaware of the consequences of his actions. In the end, the cast rises to the occasion and saves the universe. As a Christian, you're called a soldier of Christ, and it's not a part that you and I act. You really are a soldier. Every waking moment, you are to report for battle in this ongoing warfare. In chapter 20, just like today, battles will be fought, they'll be lost, and they'll be won. And so let's take a look at it. So all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead, and the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. Then the children of Israel said, tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? Now the tribes of Israel were gathering for war because of what had happened in chapter 19. We'll see what happened in answer to the question, tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? We note here that the tribe of Benjamin was conspicuously absent, and that's because the wicked deed happened in Benjamite territory. And so verse 4 So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, My concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravaged my concubine so that she died. The men of Gibeah were described as perverted. They initially demanded that the old man who was lodging the traveling Levite send him out so they could rape him. Instead, they sexually assaulted his concubine throughout the night. The Levite left out the part about giving him being the one who gave her to them himself. Uh, he didn't admit that he slept through the night while she was being abused or that he planned on leaving her behind, except that she was on the doorstep dead or unconscious when he arose to leave. Children of Israel would still have been obliged to punish the perverts in Gibeah, but they should have known the story accurately and without the spin that the Levite put on it. It may not always be possible, but I would counsel you to not give any advice, make no judgments, unless or until you believe you know the entire story. For sure, ask difficult questions. Uh, it can be tough sometimes. You can sound like you're accusing somebody, but you have to ask difficult questions if someone asks you for counsel. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, centered throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. In The Godfather, the Corleones receive a package. In it is Luca Bracci's vest and a dead fish. Tessio explains that it is a Sicilian message. Luca Bracci sleeps with the fishes. It's made its way into our popular culture. I love all these Sicilian things. They're so real. The Levite sent just such a message, but I have to say this was weird. He desecrated a body. Who does that? It should have at least been cause for pause for those listening to wonder what he hadn't told them. And there were other ways to get these guys engaged in disciplining what had happened in Gibeah than to desecrate the body of the concubine. And so this is just out there. 
Verse 7, look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. So all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do at Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. Commentators point out that they did not first seek the Lord. And that is why they will initially meet with defeat in their battles. All I can say to that is maybe. But it's important to realize that no reason is given. And we therefore need to be very careful drawing conclusions about things we are not told. We all do it. We read the word. And we come to conclusions based on things that aren't in the text. We come up with things that make sense to us. And so the commentators struggling with this. I mean, if you're a Bible commentator or a Bible teacher, you, you struggle to try and put things into perspective. And struggling with this, they say, well, it doesn't seem that they really sought the Lord on this. And so the Lord is going to allow them to be defeated twice. However, God's law was clear regarding wickedness and the crimes these perverted men were guilty of. They deserved to be punished. The Israelites were compelled to act. The infraction did not require any seeking of the Lord because his word already told them to act in discipline. So the idea here is that you've got a bunch of guys, a gang of, of perverts going around trying to rape men and raping women and sexually assaulting them. How much do you need to pray about that in terms of you know, what to do? The law was clear. They needed to be caught and stoned. And so there, there wasn't a lot, you know, hey, let's pause for prayer and make sure we know what's happening here. No, we know what's happening. Let's, let's get this done. I suggest there will be some things that you don't need to pray about. You know they're right. You know they're wrong. You should just act accordingly and just do what the Lord says. So verse 10, we'll take 10 men out of every 100 throughout all the tribes of Israel, 100 out of every 1,000, 1,000 out of every 10,000 to make provisions for the people that when they come to Gibeah and Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. They didn't take time to return home, to take even one night's rest in their own homes, or to attend to their business or to any affair of life, however urgent it might be. They had come, and now they were immediately reporting for duty. The army had no provisions, no problem. Ten men were to provide food for 90 and 100 men and so on. Uh, they were either to go to their own tribes and homes or to the towns and cities adjacent to procure food for this large army. And so they made no excuses. They were uh, reporting for duty, and they'd figure out how to supply themselves as time went on. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. The first point I'm making is simply this. They immediately reported for battle, Whatever they had been doing, when the call went out, they left it and they gathered together. Whether they had been farming or building or vacationing, they were first and foremost soldiers reporting for duty. They had a soldier mentality. There's a lot of things that we could say about this period of time in Israel's life that are negative. We've seen that throughout the book of Judges. But at least in this occasion, we see that they were ready for war uh, and they were ready to implement discipline. One author descriptively wrote, the fatally wounded kingdom of darkness still reigns upon the earth. The outcome of the war has been settled, but there are still significant battles to be fought. The famous soldier passage for us is 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life 
that he may please him who has enlisted him as a soldier. And so every morning when you awake for devotions, you're actually reporting for military service. The second point I'd make is this. You should expect to be victorious. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't I just say that we might lose battles? I did. When I say expect victory, it's because our enemies are fighting from a place of defeat. We are overcomers and we are more than conquerors and we should expect victory. We will, however, lose battles. We'll see that in a minute. uh, If we lose a battle, his mercy and forgiveness and compassion and comfort still see us through. Our very endurance as soldiers then becomes a victory. And so you should expect victory because our God is an awesome God. He's a great God going before us and all of those things that we sing about. But if you're honest, you've experienced some defeats, not always because of your sin, because of circumstances beyond your control many times. You're to endure and find victory in that endurance and in the presence of the Lord. Now, number two, verses 12 through 48, the bulk of the chapter, return to battle after every experience of defeat. Matthew Henry is the only commentator I read on these verses who was honest about our sometimes suffering defeat. Here's what he wrote. He said, God would hereby teach us not to think it strange if a good cause should suffer defeat for a while, nor to judge of the merits of it by the success of it. The interest of grace in the heart and of religion in the world may be foiled and suffer great loss and seem to be quite run down. But judgment will be brought forth to victory at last. We are foiled in a battle, but not in the whole campaign. Right may fall, but it shall arise. If you don't like the word defeat because it sounds unspiritual, it just doesn't sit well with you, substitute the word setback for it every time I use it. But the result is the same. Whether you say defeat or setback, what we see here is that we can, in fact, be foiled and suffer great loss in the battles we are called upon to fight. And so let's start taking big chunks of this, beginning in verse 12. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now therefore deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men. Among all this people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Now besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. Benjamin had a greater tribal patriotism than they did a national one. They decided to defend Gibeah from the other 11 tribes. Uh, On even just a human level, let alone on the level of the word of God, the men who were responsible for this atrocity in Gibeah should have been turned over for uh, their own destruction. But the Benjamites thought, hey, they're our brothers. Uh, Who who knows what else they were thinking, but they decided to defend them uh, and precipitate a bloody civil war. Their skill with the sling was going to make this a very difficult conflict indeed. Then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. They said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? 
And the Lord said, Judah first. Their cause was right, and they consulted the Lord. Uh, the high priest there had what was called the Urim and Thummim, and they were some kind of stones that gave you yes or no answers and gave you direction. They might have gotten some other direction from the Lord as well, but they, they asked the Lord, and he said, go and send Judah first. It was a high expectation of victory. So verse 19, the children of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. The men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. And then the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah, and on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. Man, we didn't see that coming. And this is where commentators, other than Matthew Henry, have problems. They start suggesting all sorts of reasons why the Israelites were defeated, such as God was first punishing them for their sins. And so here's the situation. They, they seek the Lord, and God says, yeah, go on out there. Go ahead. And they go, and then they're defeated. And the commentators say, well, God wanted them to be defeated so that he could uh, teach them a lesson. But none of that is in the text. They're just told to go out and fight in this righteous cause, and they're defeated. We're not told why they were defeated. Those who suggest that see no possibility of defeat so long as you are right with the Lord. I think the bare facts do more to minister to us. Sometimes even a right cause, rightly approached by a righteous believer, is defeated for a time in spiritual warfare. Example, the Apostle Paul desired to revisit the believers in Thessalonica. He had gone and established the church there. We think he might have been there only three weeks or so uh, before he was run out of town. And in 2 Thessalonians, he talks, or 1 Thessalonians rather, he's writing to them and saying that he wanted to return to them, but he was physically prevented by the devil, he says, who blocked his way, 1 Thessalonians 2.18. It literally means, the words there mean he broke up the road ahead of him. And so Paul said he was coming to resupply the Thessalonians, uh, but to put it in military terms, the evil empire destroyed the road leading to them. Satan blew up the bridge, as it were, in an apparent victory. Paul wanted to return to further supply the troops, but he was defeated in his efforts. And so we can talk about God being in control, which he is, and the fact that he worked through these circumstances. But Paul says, I wanted and determined to come back and Satan broke up the road so that I could not get to you. And so they had to come up with alternate strategies. Here's a mind-boggling setback in the spiritual realm. The prophet Daniel is told by the angel Gabriel that he was dispatched by God in answer to Daniel's prayer. Gabriel was, however, delayed in a skirmish with a supernatural opponent. For 21 days they fought until the archangel Michael came to Gabriel's aid, freeing him to continue his mission. Wow. So Daniel's praying, and God is going to give him this tremendous revelation, the key to the end times. And he sends Gabriel with the message. And Gabriel gets so far, and then the prince of Persia, a spiritual being, hinders him, wrestles with him, keeps him there for 21 days until Michael gets there and does a tag team situation. He taps him and he takes over the fight while Gabriel continues on to Daniel to give him the message. It's very interesting. It's a defeat in the spiritual realm for a time. 
God ultimately overrules it, overcomes it. Daniel gets his message. But there's a lot going on that we don't understand. Verse 22, and the people, that is, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. The children of Israel wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against him, expecting victory but dealt defeat. They sought the Lord, and it seems they did so with great sincerity. And the Lord told them, to go. In the end, you're going to have to encourage yourself to rejoin the battle. Don't wait for or depend upon others. Seek the Lord as they did and then return in his strength. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day, and Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. All these drew the sword. These Benjamites are fierce. I think we can see them as typical of our own supernatural foes. The devil and his forces were defeated by Jesus. We have everything we need to overcome them, but they are fierce, relentless, and continue to gain ground all around us. We're in a real fight, not an exhibition. If anything, knowing they are headed for the abyss and after that the lake of fire, our supernatural enemies want to inflict as much damage to our lives as possible. And, and so the, this is... Uh, a real situation that we face. Then all the children of Israel, that is all the people went up and came to the house of Gad, and we, or house of God, excuse me, and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. Trying to make some sense of their two previous defeats, commentators suggest that until now, the Israelites had not properly sought the Lord. So now they're weeping and fasting and doing this other stuff. So this is what the Lord really wanted in order to give them victory. And you know what? Maybe that's true. But we're not told that, and I think it borders on superstition to say something like that. If God's help depends on my saying the right words the right way, that's more like magic than a relationship. That's more like ritual. And a lot of people believe that. There are a lot of uh, versions of even Christianity that have certain rote prayers. These are the words that you have to say, and you have to repeat them over and over and over again. And then the Lord might decide to bless you. Uh, and so uh, I don't think some of the commentators realize they're doing that, but in, in their effort to try and come up with a reason why we're sometimes defeated, they say that you have to seek the Lord just the right way. But do any of us properly seek the Lord? And by that I mean to remind us that we're all works in progress, struggling against the flesh. No one has perfect knowledge of Jesus if victory depends on getting everything just right, we're gonna be in trouble because that's never gonna be true this side of the rapture. We're always growing and we're always learning. And so I, I don't necessarily see this as on the children of Israel. It isn't because they were failing in some way. We're not told why they suffered these defeats, only that they did. And it's probably for a variety of reasons 
but it ministers to us that there are times of defeat in the Christian life. If we just take the story at face value and let it minister to us, we see that it is possible to lose, at least for a time, our spiritual battles. Think Job. That righteous guy was doing everything right when whammo, disaster struck out of nowhere. Would you honestly say that while he sat on the ash heap scraping his boils with pottery shards that that was a victory? I mean, seriously, especially if you don't know the end of that story. It's hard not to know the end, but if you've encountered Job for the first time and you find him on the ash heap, you're not thinking, hey, that's a victory. I think Matthew Henry got it right when he said the interest of grace in the heart and of religion in the world may be foiled and suffer great loss and seem to be quite run down. Sure, there's an end, a glorious end, but in the meantime, uh, Job is defeated. His victory was assured ultimately, but he was suffering a defeat and it went on for at least a few months. To say that their two defeats were somehow the fault of the Israelites is to be like Job's friends who said that his defeat was his fault. It was not. We know that from the picture that we have in chapters 1 and 2 of the scene in heaven. So verse 28, And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. Then Israel set men in ambush all around Gibeah. And the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day, put themselves in battle array against Gibeah as at the other times. So the children of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They began to strike down and kill some of the people as at the other times in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the field, about 30 men of Israel. And the children of Benjamin said, they are defeated before us as at first. But the children of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. So all the men of Israel rose from their place and put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar. Then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plain of Geba. And 10,000 select men from all Israel came against Gibeah. And the battle was fierce. But the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All these drew the sword. Were they victorious because they finally discovered the Lord's strategy, this ambush strategy? No, we're not told that this strategy came from the Lord. All that's recorded coming from him is that he would grant victory this third time out. Kind of a sub-theme this morning, just to tuck away. Don't read things into the Bible that aren't there. When I read this, I read, well, here's the strategy that the Lord must have given them to win. But it, we're not said we're not told that. We're just told that the Lord told them to go. This is most likely their own strategy. Or at least we can't say for sure one way or the other. The things we suggest to explain their initial defeats and their eventual victory actually reveal things that we believe about God. If we exclude the possibility of defeat, we'll be even more defeated thinking God was against us too. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we, you know think in our own lives, hey, what is happening? This seems to be a defeat. I thought I was an overcomer. Well, I guess it must be all my fault. And yet, uh, we see with Job, we see with Paul, we see with uh, Gabriel, it's nobody's fault. It's the fact that there's a real battle going on and that there are ebbs and flows in this battle. Ultimately, we've won, 
And we expect victory, but there can be defeat. So the children of Benjamin saw that there were, uh, they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gibeah, and the men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city, whereupon the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel, for they said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. Even in victory, there were casualties. 30 men died to make the Benjamites think they were once again going to prevail and to mask the ambush. You and I don't always emerge from spiritual battles unscathed. I bet that Job had scars from scraping his boils. I know he had emotional pain from losing his initial family. Wouldn't you? I mean, let's say your entire family was wiped out and then years later, God gave you twice as many sons and daughters. Would, I'm sure you'd be excited about that, but what about your initial family that had been wiped out? Would you forget them? Would they mean nothing to you? And so Job's victory had in it a kind of bittersweet sense. Verse 40, but when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them and there was the whole city going up in smoke. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them, and whoever came out of the cities they destroyed with their midst, in their midst. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily trampled them down as far as the front of Gibeah toward the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were men of valor. Then they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. They cut down 5,000 of them on the highways. They pursued them relentlessly up to Gidom and killed 2,000 of them. So all who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of valor. 600 men returned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, and they stayed at the rock of Ramon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword. From every city, men and beasts, all who were found, they also set fire to all the cities they came to. Victory at last. Of course, it's bittersweet. It was victory over their own brothers. They nearly eliminated the entire tribe of Benjamin, creating a problem they're going to attempt to resolve in chapter 21. I'm not trying to glory in defeat. I'm not saying that defeat can't be the result of my own sin and disobedience brought upon me as a loving discipline from God. It certainly can. I'm saying that there are times when even though I am in the right, pursuing a right cause, the right way, I can nevertheless suffer a defeat. Sure, every spiritual defeat is only temporary in that Jesus has guaranteed us ultimate victory, but that doesn't change the fact that I'm on an ash heap like Job, scraping myself, or hindered from doing something good and godly like Paul, or that in the unseen realm, principalities and powers aren't hindering even angels who are on their mission to help me. These are the spiritual facts given to encourage us. Though in the right, the Israelites twice suffered defeats and in victory suffered losses, but by enduring, they prevailed in the end. Like these Israelites, even though I suffer a defeat, I must return to battle. I must keep on seeking the Lord. I must keep on serving him. I'm his soldier reporting for duty. Here's where the rubber meets the road. 
You have been, you currently are, or you one day will be defeated. You'll be on the losing side of a spiritual battle and you may never know why. It might be your fault, something your lack of readiness or your disobedience or your sin set you up for. It might not be your fault. You might have done nothing wrong, everything right in a right cause. The empire will always strike back. We are foiled in battle, but not the whole campaign. Right may fall, but it shall arise. Let's pray.